0: Hello there and welcome back to the PJ Pod. I'm Executive Editor Nigel Prates. For this episode, I'm stood outside a beautiful Victorian building in West London with roses over the door. This is actually a nursing home and I'm here to speak with GP pharmacist Graham Stretch about his brilliant work helping the patients here. Hello. (laughs) Hi. I'm here to see Graham Stretch.
1: Okay. He's not here yet.
0: Thank you. I'm waiting for Graham Stretch, one of the pharmacists who looks after the residents here, and I'm hopefully going to join him on one of his rounds to review his patients' medicines. You did.
2: Did she speak to you yesterday,
0: Grace? Oh, did they? And what
2: did what did she say, Grace, when she was here?
0: You know, she just asked me, "Am I happy with it?" And she asked, "What did I get?" this i'm not ill i've only
2: had a stroke fantastic well that long may it last looking at your list there's one medicine that i wonder about for itching do you have itching do you get itchy at times of the day at night or anything like that Nights
0: are the worst
2: and you're itchy at night are you stretch does it stop you getting to sleep
0: well it wakes me up wakes you up
2: all right okay so there's a medicine on here Hydroxyzine, do you ask for that when you're itchy at night?
0: This resident, Miriam, along with many older patients, find themselves on drugs like hydroxyzine, which has an anticholinergic score of three, which is pretty high.
2: Does it work? Reduces it. It works, does it?
0: Not a hundred percent. But it's better?
2: A little bit.
0: Okay.
2: I'll have a look at the chart, see how often you are.
0: In combination with other anticholinergic drugs that she's taking, these could be causing her some serious problems.
2: ...if you're just taking it at night, but sometimes it can make you a bit forgetful as well. So, if it were making you forgetful and not helping with the itchy, then we might choose to stop.
0: Getting forgetful at this old age, you know?
2: I know. (laughs) And you're (laughs) You're almost twice my age. You're too young. I know. (laughs) Well, I find myself forgetting things, and I'm only 50, so
0: there we are. (laughs) Today on the PJ Pod, we're going to be investigating whether there's a causal link between dementia and anticholinergic drugs. Graham heads up a large pharmacy team of 50 staff, looking after thousands of patients across two PCNs, and these include around 1,200 residents of care and nursing homes, of which Miriam is one.
2: What's that? Let's have a look. It's But you itch around there, do you? Yeah,
0: that's the worst.
2: Yeah, I can see you have got okay, yeah, because look, you've got some marks there where you've scratched yourself. Oh, I we just, got excorations.
0: I go made on it. Yeah, let's yeah. have a look at your nails. Oh you got
2: beautiful nails. So you're scratching yourself. Have we got some cream to put on as well? Yeah, I do I can maybe give you some Urax cream as well to put on in addition, because actually rather than scratching it Maybe if you have the cream in here, would we be able to keep it in here? You could kind of rub it on for yourself. Should we do that? Brilliant. Brilliant. That sounds like a good plan. Because it does look itchy.
0: After consulting with the staff about how often it's used, Miriam's hydroxyzine prescription was replaced with a skin cream to help her control her nighttime itching.
2: And hopefully that will make you feel a bit better.
0: And this is just one small example of how Graham works every day to help reduce the anticholinergic burden of his older patients and help improve their quality of life.
2: Good. And this is Nigel. And he's, he's going to record this for training, so we can train other pharmacists. Would that be all right? Lovely, thank you very much.
0: You're welcome.
2: I think you've earned a drink later. <laughs> and so have I.
0: And a high anticholinergic burden hasn't just been linked with dementia. It can cause serious problems such as urinary retention, blurred vision, dizziness, sedation, confusion and even delirium. This is the way Graham explains it.
2: So if we were to choose to use one of these agents in a patient who already had intellectual impairment, who was barely coping to be independent at home, perhaps they have a strategy where they write notes or they'll leave messages for themselves, post-it notes, whatever it might be. If we give one of these medicines that just impacts the patients in such a way we can tip them over to the point where they're no longer able to cope. And very often these medicines are used for conditions where there's either no need to use them, because it's rather trivial, so perhaps an allergy or something, we could use a, a different agent, or not trivial, incontinence is certainly not that, but there are alternative agents that wouldn't have that effect, and therefore wouldn't impair the patient's intellectual ability and would allow them to live independently for longer and don't underestimate the impact that has on people's lives and so these medicines we need to take care with there is a place for them sometimes there is no alternative and they should be time limited and they should be reviewed and that's really a responsibility that pharmacy needs to own it's our responsibility to make these patients make sure these patients aren't just started on these agents and left on them with no kind of review because what we know what my experience tells and what the literature tells us is that they can do very significant harms. We've mentioned intellectual impairment, but there's more basic things like dry eyes, dry mouth. They can cause problems with with glaucoma. They can cause problems with urinary retention in gentlemen with prostate disease. And so fall risk is increased as well. And so for a range of reasons, these agents should be at the top of everyone's priority list when reviewing patients, particularly older patients, particularly frail patients, who will tolerate those medicines much less well than someone who's younger and also the other thing i would say is that there's almost always an alternative that wouldn't have the same impact on them so careful choice careful discussion with patients and and colleagues will will probably find that the patients are able to be treated just as well but not be at risk
0: of these problems there are many tools to measure anticholinergic burden many of them built into gp systems and there can often be strikingly visible results after stopping or reducing anticholinergic drugs in patients with dementia. We notice a difference, not so
2: much ours, but conversations with relatives and nurses. Um, A lady stopped me in the supermarket and told me that one of our staff, one of our pharmacists, newly qualified pharmacists, had attended the nursing home and had in fact stopped some medicines for for bladder medicines and anticholinergic medicines for their relative. And she said, and I quote, that, that we feel like we've got mum back. That the dementia, together with the anticholinergic, had essentially rendered communication very difficult with her mum. But actually simply stopping the
0: medicines has allowed mum to be able to engage more with the family, and that's so important. All of this is supported by good evidence. The Medical Research Council Cognitive Function and Ageing study reported data from 13,000 UK patients aged over 65 in 2011. It showed medication with anticholinergic effects was associated with a measurable decline in mental state. And more shockingly, two-year mortality rates were 68% greater for those taking anticholinergics. But despite NICE guidance saying that anticholinergic burden should be minimised in patients with suspected or confirmed dementia, there's evidence that during the COVID pandemic, anticholinergic use, particularly in the form of antipsychotics, rose markedly. And there are plans for one particularly harmful anticholinergic to go over the counter, but more on that later. But first, In order to understand the emerging evidence of a link between anticholinergics and dementia, we have to go all the way back to 2016. In that year, a US study suggested all sorts of common anticholinergics were linked with an increased risk of developing dementia. It was seized on by a number of tabloid newspapers in the UK, with headlines such as heartburn drugs and sleeping pills shrink the brain. But, as ever, the situation is a bit more complicated than that. This study was only observational so could not distinguish whether the lower brain tissue levels and test scores of those taking the anticholinergics were the result of the drugs or the depression, anxiety and insomnia they were taking them for. But other researchers have refined this work trying to find out which anticholinergic drugs may be worse than others when it comes to dementia risk.
3: So my name's Professor Chris Fox and I'm a consultant psychiatrist and I'm an academic at the University of Exeter and I also work in the NHS and I co-developed one of the most highly used um, measures of anticholinergic burden in the world called the ACB tool.
0: I spoke with Chris just as he was working with colleagues on a new publication in this area and he was kind enough to let me in on his findings.
3: Our study in 2011 was the first to report an association with death, falls and dementia for these drugs in general, of which the bladder medications seem to be um, the most likely candidate. In our British Medical Journal paper in 2019, we've subsequently narrowed this down to some antidepressants, antipsychotics and bladder medication. And we are in the process of reporting uh, the impact on risk of dementia in men and women of four common anticholinergic bladder medication drugs, which initially showed that in men there is it seems to be a dose-response signal, um, and in women less so, but still a signal.
0: It's early data, but it appears the more you take these drugs, the higher the risk. But not all drugs in those broad classes are the same. Take the bladder medicines, or more specifically antimuscarinics, for example. They're a cornerstone of therapy for overactive bladder, a common problem in older people. But while drugs such as oxybutynin and tolteridine appear to be linked with dementia risk, others have no anticholinergic properties, such as mirabegron. Chris explained to me in more detail why this might be.
3: It's basically two mechanisms. Either the drugs getting across the blood-brain barrier and doing damage there. And um, the particular area of, uh, of how it does that is through neuroinflammation. And there is evidence in the literature that if you have a high anticholinergic load, you have more inflammatory markers. We've got a paper that we're producing at the moment which has shown association with that. Um, The other aspect of course is a peripheral effect where it has an effect in the peripheral part of the body which then affects the central part. So it's a more distal effect. So there's two mechanisms, direct drug action onto the brain or some systemic effect outside the brain which then affects the brain later and then causes cognitive impairment or leads to the dementia pathway. Such as inflammation peripherally, which then heads centrally. It's not the drug getting across; um, it's the sort of effects of the drug. The other issue that is complicated is that uh, many manufacturers of medicines say that their drugs do not cross the blood-brain barrier. That may be the case, but as you get older, your blood-brain barrier leaks, and if you get ill, it leaks more. So anything can get across potentially. It's a sort of quite a dynamic system. Pores can open and close. It's not as like a sealed wall as we used to think it was.
0: Is it cumulative? Is it your lifetime accumulation of taking anti or is it is it not the case?
3: Yes, it is cumulative for dementia. We, we, we discovered that over your lifetime and we look back to, I think, over 20 years and found that over if you've had more exposures, the risk is greater, for sure.
0: This said, some experts, including the new NHS England clinical director for prescribing, Professor Tony Avery, have gone as far as suggesting that there may be enough evidence of a causal link between oxybutynin and dementia. In a controversial paper published last June, Professor Avery and colleagues concluded, It appears that the use of oxybutynin satisfies the Bradford Hill criteria for establishing a causal link with the development of dementia, and this may also be the case for other anticholinergics that easily cross the blood-brain barrier should doctors and pharmacists make the case for avoiding anticholinergics associated with risk of dementia? The precautionary principle would suggest that we should act now and advise colleagues not to use anticholinergics associated with dementia for bladder symptoms when there are alternatives that appear to be safer. Although Chris says it may be more complicated than that. What we're not saying is that if you take
3: oxybutin, you will definitely get dementia. What we're saying is that it's part of this risk profile issue. There are things like being overweight, smoking too much, genetics, uh, lack of exercise, mental stimulation. We believe anticholinergics are part of that and all these things taken together also with something called multimorbidity, which is having other conditions creates the particular risk profile. It's part of something that is well known, called precision medicine and precision risk profiling. That's, I think, where the anticholinergic story will fit in. There is a signal, although it's small, and the signal particularly applies to medicines used for bladder stress incontinence, etc.
0: There may be sophisticated AI systems in future to help pharmacists with this type of multi-layered risk calculation. But until then, perhaps it pays to be more careful with how we use drugs such as oxybutanine. But that's a message that the UK medicines regulator, the MHRA, is yet to take on board. In fact, in April 2022, it proposed to make a particular brand of oxybutanine available from pharmacies without a prescription. It was a move that caused a lot of concern for many pharmacists, including Graham Stretch. And how concerned are you about the OTC switch proposed for oxybutynin? It just felt
2: like the wrong drug at the wrong time, just as the literature was establishing even causal links between oxybutynin and dementias. So there is literature now demonstrating causality for the first time. Just at that moment, the company decided that, quite reasonably, a medicine might be made available via pharmacy to help ladies in this case, with with incontinence, but chose an agent that was the most likely to do harm of all of the anticholinergic bladder medicines. And so it seemed at the time to me, when I read about it, a very strange choice. I think that if we are to, and I think we probably should be allowing medicines to be sold over the counter more, so they're more accessible for patients, particularly for embarrassing conditions, potentially like incontinence, we need to choose the agent very carefully. Oxybutanin definitely contributes to cognitive impairment, it causes a range of other problems, increasing fall risk, increasing constipation, dry eyes. And simply saying, well, it's only available for people in middle age isn't enough because we've got papers, we've got literature that demonstrates that the use of these agents in middle, middle age increases the risk of developing dementia. So it seemed to me a very strange choice.
0: Certainly if I was going to... Chris Fox
3: agrees. I think um, it's going to set up huge problems at the moment. We have an unknown potential risk problem, various um, ailments from these drugs. Now, I am uh, quite concerned. It was a bit like when they um, deregulated some metadine and ranitidine and made them over the counter, non prescribed. And uh, people now realize well, these have to be used cautiously because you can get overuse syndrome and there's potential risk of uh, cancer risk for changing the uh, pH in the stomach, etc. So at present, I think, with these factors, I'm quite surprised. And there are other side effects of these drugs, nothing to do with anticholinergics. Um, And getting people off them um, is interesting. When I did some talks to urogynecologists some years ago, they said that people just end up stuck on these drugs and they probably don't need them. And it was difficult to get them off. So there's various reasons beyond anticholinergic. And the other thing is that they don't always work and people can end up taking it thinking, oh, well, I'll just stay on it even though it's not working. So I'm, I'm, I am concerned about this particular class of drugs being um, potentially given over-the-counter.
0: Since opening its consultation on oxybutanine, the MHRA has gone very quiet. But I caught up with my colleague, Julia Robinson, who's been following this story about what the latest is. Julia, hi. Hello. So what's the hold-up on this, do you think?
1: So the consultation on these proposals to make Acreate milligram tablets available from pharmacies closed on the 13th of May so that's over four months ago. At the time we ran a story quoting a number of pharmacists who were really concerned about the potential reclassification and they weren't alone. I've since learned that a number of experts many of whom were authors of studies investigating the risks of oxybutynin have been in contact with the MHRA to express their worries.
0: What, What people said on the record though?
1: So I've gathered some official responses to the consultation to get an idea of what some of the pharmacy organisations thought about it. So the Royal Pharmaceutical Society said that it didn't believe that oxybutynin was suitable to undergo the switch from prescription-only medicine to pharmacy medicine. And this was for a number of reasons, uh, including, as you've spoken about, the mounting evidence linking it with dementia. It said that further investigation of these side effects should be required before reclassifications are allowed to happen. Pharmacy Forum Northern Ireland had a similar response. In contrast, the Proprietary Association of Great Britain, so they represent manufacturers of branded OTC medicines, said that the reclassification was the right move because there was an unmet need for an OTC medicine for overactive bladder. They said the drug had a well-established safety profile due to the fact it's been used widely in the UK since 1991. So as I said, it's been a number of months since the consultation closed. However, when I went to the MHRA a couple of weeks ago to ask them what was happening, all they said was that no update could be shared at this stage.
0: But what's the manufacturer involved said about all this?
1: So I also contacted Maxwellia about the delay in the consultation to find out what they think about it. But they just responded saying that they're still waiting for news. At the time, Of the news story that we did, they were really quick to respond to concerns about the proposals, saying that providing Acrea as an early self-care option would drive awareness of overactive bladder and let women know that there is a treatment available without them needing to go to their GP. They also said that early intervention could stop mild overactive bladder symptoms from progressing to something more serious.
0: What's your feeling? How do you think this will play out?
1: So I'm not entirely sure, but it seems likely that if there have been a high enough volume of complaints, the proposed reclassification won't go ahead. After all, that's the whole point of having a public consultation. But we'll keep everyone updated as we find out more.
0: Can I also ask you about an investigation that you've been doing uh, more widely about anticholinergic use during the pandemic?
1: Yeah, so I was looking at some figures collated by the NHS Business Services Authority on the Medication Safety Indicators Dashboard. So these are prescribing indicators that have been developed specifically to help reduce medication errors and improve medicine safety. So there's one indicator there which collates data about the number of patients prescribed two or more medicines with moderate or high anticholinergic activity. So this is defined as an anticholinergic burden score of two for moderate or three for high. The numbers are pretty steady between 2015 and 2019. However, there was a noticeable jump that coincided with the beginning of the COVID pandemic.
0: So this is an ongoing trend. What, what's driving all of this?
1: Yeah, so I spoke with an expert about this, and apparently there was an increase in antipsychotic medication prescribing in older people, especially in care homes during the pandemic. This, they said, was to prevent patients with behavioural disturbances wandering around the care home and spreading the virus.
0: Oh wow, that's that's pretty shocking, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's really shocking. I also came across an NHS England document online which um, suggested some other reasons for that increased antipsychotic prescribing and they talked about things like lack of ward staff in- experienced in managing people with dementia during that time, increased stress for carers, reviews being carried out virtually and a general lack of psychosocial interventions. So an over-reliance on pharmacological interventions.
0: So which drugs are we talking about here?
1: So as the person I spoke to you said, the issue was antipsychotic medication. So olanzapine and quetiapine both have an ACB score of three. So I had a look and prescribing of both of these has been increasing pretty steadily since 2008. So it might be that an increase in antipsychotic prescribing does indeed account for the spike that I found. Uh, uh, what uh, What
0: is the NHS doing about this problem?
1: So... They've carried out a national audit which confirmed that there had been an increased rate of antipsychotic prescribing in care homes during the pandemic and since then they've done some work to try to reduce these numbers again. Um, They completed an antipsychotic toolkit to support prescribers as part of this so hopefully prescribing will start to go down again now that we're coming out of the pandemic.
0: Let's hope so. When it comes to bladder drugs, have you seen any increase in the use of them?
1: Yes, I looked immediately at levels of oxybutynin and tolteridine after I saw that jump. But actually, levels of oxybutynin have been steadily tracking downwards since around 2014. Tolteridine prescribing is a bit all over the place, but it peaked in 2017. So that's quite a bit before the pandemic. So overall I guess that's good news then shows that efforts to address prescribing of these particular drugs might be paying off. But I think there's still some work to do to get other drugs with a high anticholinergic burden under control.
0: Thank you, Julia, for that update. It's clearly going to be an area we're going to be looking at for years to come.
1: Yeah, I'm really interested to see what the outcome of that consultation will be. And we'll be covering it in detail as soon as we find out more. I think while we wait for the outcome of this consultation, it's very important that this is something that all pharmacists have on their radar when they're talking to patients about their medicines
0: that's a really good point in fact um th- that's a really nice segue into what graham said to me about this type of work
2: if my experience teaches me one thing that the part of the job i enjoy the most is when i manage to get that engagement with a patient and the patient themselves or a relative tells me that that intervention that that de has improved their quality of life when they can talk to mum again and that's the reason why i do it ultimately that that refreshes me Yes, okay, so seeing patients a tiring, a big list of patients, but actually, I'm professionally and personally refreshed where we see patients' quality of life improve simply by properly managing their medicines. And so don't see it as a chore, see it as integral to you gaining the most professional satisfaction from your job and, and actually just using those skills that you've worked hard over the years to And this is This is where you can make a huge difference to patients' lives. So I would encourage everyone to engage. And if necessary, you see a patient and you go back. But actually just talking to patients is incredibly rewarding, particularly when they realise that there are medicines that they're taking that no longer they need or that might be causing them difficulties. And they will value that, and they'll come back to you for advice. And that's how you build, build the satisfaction in your role. And so I'd recommend everyone just engage with your patients and use your knowledge to benefit them.
0: All right, thank you very much. Thank great. you. Cheers. Thanks. You've been listening to the PJ Pod. Please like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and tell us what you think using the hashtag PJPod on social media. Until next time. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.